Acts chapter 2. We want to continue using what we see in the book of Acts as it describes the early church to basically answer a couple or three questions that I have in mind. Um, In light of all that we've been through over the last year or so, there are questions that are raised in my own mind about how are we as a church to respond to what's happening in our culture. And so... Uh, Acts chapter 2 is helpful, I think, in the book of Acts in the New Testament, obviously, but Acts chapter 2 in describing how the early church lived and worshipped together is very helpful in terms of a paradigm for understanding how we're to handle various things that are going on in our culture. And so the first question that we're trying to answer is, what does a life of repentance look like? Because on the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches his message, and then the people ask the question, as it says in verse 37 of Acts chapter 2, what shall we do? They're convicted of their sin, and they're asking the question, what shall we do? And then Peter tells them to repent. And then you have, in the remaining part of the chapter, you have a description of what it looks like for someone to repent what their life looks like, what's important to those who've truly repented in light of the gospel. And so that's very, very important. Then secondly, another question that we're trying to ask, well, let me just back up a minute. The reason why that's important is because we've been talking about the Great Reset. There's a sense in which there's a man's Great Reset where mankind says, we think we can eradicate um, poverty, We can eradicate illness, and we might even get to the point where we can eradicate death, and we can make heaven on earth. But those plans have nothing to do with God. It's all about what man can do. And so there's this great reset talk that talks in very grandiose ways. And the question is, how do we live as Christians in light of what our culture is talking about? Well, that's where... The great personal reset comes in. God says the way you live in light of whatever the the world around you is saying is by repentance. And then the other question is, how do I prepare for God's great reset? Which is when he does bring heaven to earth. When he does destroy evil. How do I prepare for that? And the Bible says, repent. That is how we uh, prepare for it. And so... The question is, what is repentance? What does it look like? And that's what we're going to talk about more. But the second question is, what does the church need to do to fulfill the Great Commission? Because the book of Acts is very much about what it says in verse 8 of chapter 1. When Jesus told his disciples, you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So that the book of Acts is the, the church fulfilling that commission. It's what it looked like for everyday Christians to be a part of the fulfillment of that call to be a witness both where you are and to the ends of the earth. And then, so there's a sense in which it's basically asking the question, so as a Christian, someone who follows Christ, how am I supposed to live my life? And sometimes when things are so 
out of whack around us. We need reminders. Oh yeah, this is how God calls me to live. No matter how crazy things get in society, this is how God calls me to live. And then finally, in light of what I just said, how are we to live in a perverse generation? That's what Peter talks about in verse 40 of chapter 2 when he says, be saved from this perverse generation, which means don't be like this perverse generation. Perverse means twisted, warped, um, totally off track in terms of what God calls us to be and to do. And so what does that look like? What does it look like to be different? And so there's a sense in which what I want us to think through as we go through this is, am I prepared? Am I prepared for how things might get in our country? Am I prepared for how hostile it might become to be a Christian? And am I prepared for the return of Christ, whenever that might be, whether it's sooner or later? Secondly, is it my ambition to please God, or do I have another agenda? I mean, is that really what motivates me day in and day out, is regardless of what other people are doing, I want to live my life to please God. And therefore, the question is, what does that look like? And then thirdly, um, how am I going to respond to a world that is so perverse and twisted in the sense that it's, it's f- turning upside down? Everything God says is true. God says they're male and female, and the world says, no, there's not. There's a hundred different genders or classifications. So the world is turning everything upside down. The question is, how can I be faithful to God when I'm tempted just to fall in line with what people say because it's easier that way? And my burden for myself, for my own family, as well as for you, is that we will be prepared. And so that's why I'm taking the time to do what we're doing here. Um, One of the things that we're going to develop over time is the fact that if you think through what's what we find in Acts chapter 2 and the rest of the book of Acts and even through the New Testament, you can find uh, five broad categories of how the Christians devoted themselves. They devoted themselves to speaking the truth. And that's what Jesus said, right? You're to be my witnesses. That's a speaking thing. They also devoted themselves to seeking God. That's what worship is. When we come together, we're not coming together just to go through rituals or or just to be religious. We're coming together to seek God. They devoted themselves to community where they shared life and they shared their gifts with each other. That's why we have a sharing time, because we're sharing life. They were The early church was devoted to that. The early church was devoted to showing compassion to people inside the church and outside the church. And the reality is um, we will probably have more and more opportunities to do just that as the days unfold and get harder. And then finally, the, the early church was devoted to serving well in areas that everyone has to, to serve in. But they may or may not serve well in those, like in the family, like where you work, and just being a citizen. And so all of those things are things that the New Testament uh, encourages us to live like Christians in these areas. And so let me read for us Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 41 through uh, verse 47, and just remind us again of what this says. 
It says, So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so as I mentioned, the first broad category that the early church was devoted to was the category of communication or the category of speaking the truth and holding on to the truth that they're speaking. And we see that in verse 42 of Acts 2 where it says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And like I've said, we have, to, we have to ask ourselves, what am I really devoted to? Am I devoted to the teaching of the apostles like I'm devoted to eating? Because I see it as just as important. Am I devoted to the apostle, teaching of the apostles just like I'm devoted to my children because I see them as important? Whatever it is that you would say, yeah, I'm devoted to this and this and this or these people or whatever, we have to ask ourselves, am I devoted to the teaching of the apostles as well, just like that? Why is that important? Because it's very likely that what we're devoted to is going to be exposed. And whether or not we're really holding on to the truth tightly and feeding on it and resting in it and fighting with it is going to be exposed. And those who aren't really holding on to it will just kind of walk away because it's going to be too hard to be a Christian. It's going to be too hard to be a true Christian. And so that's why over and over again Paul talks about the fact that if we, if we continue in the faith, we hold on to the truth that we've been given, then we are truly following Christ. Well, obviously the question is, what is the teaching of the apostles? Teaching means uh, what they communicated that, that said this is true about God, about man, about salvation, about life, and this is what you're to do in light of that truth. And obviously we know the apostles were um, the eleven minus Judas, or actually the 12 minus Judas, um, that Jesus called to himself. And then there were others like Paul that um, Jesus called later on that preached and taught the truth that Jesus wanted preached and taught. And as I've said before, at the very end of the book, you can see what Paul says is a summary of the apostles' teaching that he was preaching when it says that he preached the kingdom of God and taught concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. And so there's a sense in which you can summarize the teaching of the apostles as it's about a king and a kingdom. A lot of times we talk about it just in terms of it's about salvation from sin, and it is. But the bigger picture is it's about a king and a kingdom. And so I've kind of just summarized it up here for us, on the left side, you have what we talked about last week, just very briefly, 
the key things that are at the heart of what the apostles taught. They talked about how God sent his son to rescue us from sin and to satisfy us in God. And that basically answers the question, um, is there a problem with the world we live in? And the answer is yes, there's a big problem. No matter how much good there is in this world, no matter how good your neighbor is and how kind they may be, no matter how good you might think you are in various ways, we all have a major problem. And that problem is we're not what we were created to be. We're not perfect. We're not obedient to God. We don't glorify God. And that's why the Bible says we've fallen short of the glory of God. And there are consequences to that. And therefore, uh, God sent Jesus not because everything was wonderful, but because there was something wrong. It's like when you call on a plumber, you don't generally call a plumber just to sit down and have coffee. You call a plumber because you have some major problems and they're costly problems. It's just the way it works out. Well, there are major problems with this fallen world, costly problems, things that we could not pay the price for, things that we could not solve ourselves. And so God sends his son, and he sends his son to live the life we could never live, to die the death we deserve to die. Then he rose from the dead, which is the evidence that what he did in living and dying was everything that God required that we might be saved. He ascended back to heaven and he rules and reigns over everything now. And one day he will return. And so the question is, what is our response supposed to be to the good news? There's a story about um, Charles Spurgeon who went one day uh, to prep in a place, the Crystal Palace, where he was going to be preaching, and he wanted to figure out where to put his platform. And he went there, and nobody's there except people that's, that are working on the place. And he just stands up, and he quotes from the Bible and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And there's a guy working up in the rafter somewhere up in the gallery, and he hears Spurgeon quote that scripture, and he's immediately convicted of his sin. And he gets all his tools together and he goes home. And after a season of really wrestling, he comes to put his faith in Christ. Why? Because he saw something he'd never seen before. He saw a Jesus that God had sent. He saw a Jesus who had lived a perfect life, who had died a death in his place, who had risen from the dead, who was reigning over all, and who would one day return. To some degree, he saw the Jesus of the gospel. He saw the good news of the gospel. He beheld the Lamb of God. And so when you're thinking through those propositions, they can feel just like propositions. They can feel like just sentences. But what they're meant to convey is, they're meant to convey the truth about a real living person who is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he's the only way any of us will ever be forgiven and enter in the kingdom of God. And so we need to behold the Lamb of God in the gospel. And so what happens to people when they really behold the Lamb of God in the truths of the gospel? That's what we want to begin talking about today. 
You know, we live in an information age where you can find out anything and everything. If you don't want to call the plumber, you just look it up on YouTube and you find out how to fix it yourself. It's amazing to me that I can come up with just about any question and someone has answered that question on YouTube. That might be a fun thing to do is to find out one question that nobody's answered yet. But it seems like everything is on the Internet that you can find out how to do something or find out information that you want. But the problem with that is we are information inundated. We have all kinds of apps where we scroll through the news, we scroll through our Facebook, we scroll through all kinds of information. We read headlines and we pass it by until we find something we want to read or that strikes us. And the problem is we can listen to the things I talked about last week and just kind of briefly went over uh, today about the gospel, and it can be like scrolling. We just kind of scroll through the truth and not really respond to it. You can scroll through your Facebook and choose not to respond. And there are a lot of times you shouldn't respond to things you see on Facebook. Sometimes, many times, that's the thing to do. Don't even respond. But the question is, are we in the habit of doing the same thing when we hear the truth of the gospel? Are we doing the same thing when we read our Bibles? Are we doing the same thing when we hear preaching, whether it's here or on our iPod or whatever? Are we doing the same thing? We're just kind of scrolling through the truth, but not really responding to it, not really taking the time to think it through. And that's one of the real challenges of our day and time, is that we treat the Bible like we treat Facebook. We treat the Bible like we treat our news feed. And we just pick and choose what we're going to focus on, and we don't give ourselves to it as we should. The word gospel... um, To preach the gospel is actually a word that was connected to a very real image in the first century. It was connected to the idea of a message that was sent from a king. So it was a royal message, and the message would be like a you know a town crier who would go you know ring a bell, hear ye, hear ye, Uh, the king says this, and. That is really the idea of the gospel. It's good news from the king about the king. And so um, you have accounts where uh, there's an account in 9 BC about Caesar Augustus. And in this account, there was this proclamation, this announcement, this royal message that was sent out. And it talked about how Caesar Augustus... um, was someone that Providence had chosen in a special way because Providence was deeply interested in us, it says, this proclamation. And therefore, Providence sent Augustus, this emperor, um, and, and Providence had filled this emperor with virtue that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior. This is exactly what it says about this emperor, Augustus Caesar. And it says... You know, by his appearance, uh, he's excelled all of our uh, anticipations, has surpassed all previous benefactors, not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he's done. We're talking about amazing things to be said about a human king, a human emperor. And it says that they were going to begin keeping track of the year based on his birthday. And so that was the whole point of the announcement is 
Providence has blessed us with this emperor, Augustus Caesar, and now we're going to acknowledge that by ordering our calendars according to his birthday. The first day of the year will now be his birthday. So that it says at the end, the birthday of the God of Augustus was the beginning of the good tidings for the world that came by reason of him. Someone has commented on that inscription and said, uh, what they were doing was they were heralding the good news of the arrival of a kingdom, the reign of a king that brought an end to, excuse me, brought a war to an end, so that all people of the world who surrendered and pledged their allegiance to this king would be granted salvation from destruction. So the, the point is, the announcement carried with it certain expectations about what people would do with it. To announce a king isn't just FYI, so-and-so is king. As if, we just want you to know that, doesn't really necessarily have any bearing on your life. No, to announce a king and to announce that this is the greatest gift you could ever receive actually calls for response. It's kind of like if we would have walked into the Sony Sioux classroom up there and shouted, ice cream! That would be an announcement that would draw forth a response from our children, right? Um, Why? Because they would immediately see the importance of that announcement. Or you could go into a movie theater and shout, fire! Now, you could ignore that, but it might be something you would ignore to your peril. So there are announcements that are like that, that are weighty, that are authoritative, authoritative, and that's what the gospel is. It's, it's, an, it's a, a royal announcement of a king that has ascended to the throne, and his name is Jesus. But he's a benevolent king. He's a merciful king. And you can be a part of his kingdom if you'll repent and trust him. But if you refuse to, there will be serious consequences. Just like anyone in that day and time, if they heard about Caesar Augustus and said, oh, I don't care about Caesar. You can bet Caesar would care about whether or not you cared about Caesar. And there would be serious consequences if we just ignored it. And that's why it's helpful to think about the possible responses to the gospel. Some people will say, you know, I, I hear that, you know, all that you just said about Jesus. And I just think it's a myth. It's a story that was made up after a long time when nobody was around to say that's not something that really happened. The problem with that is the story goes all about all the way back to the very time of the apostles, just a few years after the resurrection of Jesus. Others will say, you know what, maybe Jesus was a really good teacher and a really good guy that we should imitate, but I don't think he's anything more than that. What's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is he said he was God and he was the only Savior of the world. And if you're a good teacher, but you're not telling the truth, then you're not a good teacher. If, if you say someone's a good teacher, but they lie about who they are and they lie about what they can do for you, that's not a good teacher. So you can't simply say Jesus was a good teacher. The, the royal message from heaven about Jesus demands something more. So ultimately, like C.S. Lewis and others have said, you have to decide whether or not he was lying, the truth about Jesus is a lie, or that Jesus himself was just crazy, you know? He was mistaken, he was maybe a good guy, but, you know, he just was 
wrong about who he was, or he is truly Lord. He's truly king. And the announcement of his kingship is something that bears weight for all of us. That's why C.S. Lewis could say, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. If all of that is bunk, it's not true, then we just need to get up and go home. This is just a waste of time. But he says, if it's true, it's of infinite importance. Then it's important enough that we would lay our life down for it, that we would give up anything to be a part of his kingdom. He says, the only thing that cannot be is moderately important. That's the same kind of thing Jesus would say, like what he said in the book of Revelation. He said, because you're not hot or cold, I'll spew you out of my mouth. Uh, To see Jesus as moderately important is wrong. He is so much more than moderately important. He is of infinite importance. And therefore, it's important that we think through what is our response to be, even as Christians, because sometimes we lose sight, don't we, of who Jesus is? We lose sight of what it is, what is the proper response to him in light of who he is and what he's done. Um, if you read through the New Testament, and hopefully you are doing that to one degree or another, uh, one way or another, you've probably noted that there are times when the Bible says all you need to do in response to the good news of King Jesus is believe, is to exercise faith. For instance, in Acts 16, um, the jailer, Philippian jailer, asked the question in verse 30, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And then in verse 31, Paul says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. He simply says, Believe in the Lord Jesus, which is faith. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, for, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. Faith means I'm trusting Jesus for something that I cannot do for myself. Romans 3.28 says, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Again, Paul just kind of summarizes how we're to respond to King Jesus and the good news about him by simply saying, we need to have faith, we need to exercise faith, we need to believe. But there are other places where it talks about repentance. And so that's why in Acts 2, when they ask um, Peter, what shall we do? Peter doesn't say believe, he says repent. And then in Matthew 4, it says in verse 17, From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He doesn't say believe. He says repent. And we can see the same kind of thing later on in the book of Acts, Acts 17, verse 30 and 31, where it says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness, through a man, speaking of Jesus, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So sometimes the response that's appropriate to King Jesus is called faith. Sometimes the response that's appropriate to King Jesus is called repentance. And sometimes both are included. 
In Acts 20, verse 21, Paul says that he solemnly testified to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in Mark chapter 1, it says, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the question is, why does the Bible talk like this? Those are the kinds of things that it's helpful to ask in your quiet time. You know, why does God say this? Why does God say this here and say something different here? How do they fit together? And the reality is, the first two things on the right side of the list, turn and trust. Turn refers to repentance. Trust refers to faith. And if you would, turn to Luke chapter 18. I'll give you one more story that we'll look at this morning before we're done. Luke chapter 18. The question, why is turn and trust something that goes together in Scripture at times, and sometimes God just talks about repentance or turning, sometimes he talks about just faith or trusting? Um, Why is that the case? And I want to argue that the basic response to King Jesus is like a coin that has two sides. On one side is written trust. On the other side of the coin is written turn. But both, both of those things together are what you might call a humble response to a king. Because there really is no other response to a king. You either humble yourself before the king and you trust him and you obey him or you rebel against him. It's either humility or not. It's either humility or pride. It's either humility or rebellion. That's the only response there is to a king, because the king is saying, I have authority over your life, but I promise you that you will be blessed if you follow and submit to my authority. And so it immediately calls us to ask ourselves, am I willing to submit to that kingship over my life? I think this story in Luke 18, 9 through 14 kind of illustrates the, the idea of humility that's involved in that two-sided coin of turn and trust. It says, speaking of Jesus, and he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus says, this is the point of the story. I tell you, this man went to his house justified, meaning right with God, justified rather than the other meaning the tax collector went to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Which means the basic fundamental response to the gospel is humility. And so how do we see humility in this story? Well, we see the Pharisee saying, starting off sounding kind of humble, God, I thank you. He's thanking God. That sounds kind of humble. But what he says is, I thank you that I'm not like other people, which totally turns humility on its head. 
And he says, I thank you that I'm not like this guy over here, this tax collector. Then you have a tax collector who says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He says, I'm a sinner. I deserve nothing from you. I don't deserve anything from your hand. All I can ask for is mercy, meaning that you don't give me what I deserve. Please don't give me what I deserve. I confess I'm not what I should be. I confess I've fallen short of your glory. I confess I've rebelled against your kingship over my life. Please forgive me. Please have mercy on me. I can do nothing to rectify the situation, and you are right in condemning me if you so choose. It's a place of humility. It's a place of humbling ourselves before God. And, and Jesus promises He promises if we humble ourselves before God in that way, we will be exalted. Nobody who humbles himself like that will be rejected. That's why in Matthew 5, 3, at the beginning of the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say blessed are those with poor self-esteem. He says the poor in spirit. And what he means is, those who realize that they have nothing to offer to God except their sin. They have nothing to offer to God except their sin. They have nothing to obligate God to bless them or receive them or love them or welcome them into his kingdom. So as we go through this, hopefully you'll see that turning and trusting is a way of expressing that kind of humility. And the other... Words up here, rest and hope, love and endure. Resting and hoping are two sides, are two aspects of trust. Resting in Jesus for God's love is an aspect of trust. Hoping in God for what he's promised me is an aspect of trust. Loving and enduring are aspects of turning, turning from sin. I turn from sin to do the will of God. I endure whatever comes my way, turning from the temptation to walk away, turning from the allurements of the world. I endure. So loving and enduring are aspects of repentance. They're uh, how we walk out our repentance day in and day out. And so we've got a few minutes left here. If you would, um, just look again at Acts chapter 2, uh, 37 and 38, verses 37 and 38. Um, One of the questions that's really important is to ask ourselves, do I need to be concerned about my sin? Now, that may seem to be um, an obvious question. But in our day and time, it's not really an obvious question. There are those who would say that all I need is to believe in Jesus and I don't need to really be worried about my sin. Just this morning, I was reading about Donald Trump and Uh, There was a famous report about Donald Trump when someone asked him about whether or not he ever asked God for forgiveness. And he said, I don't think I've ever done that. He says, whenever I think I've done something wrong, I just try to make it right. I don't try to bring God into it. So there are those like Donald Trump, at least when he said that, that don't see a faith in God, because he would say he has a kind of faith in God. He doesn't see that as being something that requires 
a concern about sin and whether or not we've appropriately responded to it, at least in terms of what the Bible says we should do. And I mentioned last week, and maybe we'll talk about this more later on, is that there's a gospel that's being preached in our country today. There are all kinds of gospels being preached. I mean, Islam is a sort of gospel. Um, um, Mormonism is a sort of gospel. There's all kinds of gospels being preached in our country, but there is also more and more um, in the news in various ways what you would call a social gospel that's being preached. There are those with a background in the church, and I mentioned, uh, I think, something that this gentleman said last week, Ibram X. Kendi, uh, who grew up in the church. His, his dad was a pastor. And yet on this video, he talks about the fact, this is just within the last year or two, he talks about the fact that the gospel really isn't about Jesus saving us from sin. He says what the gospel really is about is about being saved from oppressive structures. And so what he says is, the job of the Christian is to liberate society from the powers on earth that are oppressing humanity. And he calls it liberation theology. He says that's different from uh, savior theology, where he says, under savior theology, the job of the Christian is to go out and save these individuals who are behaviorally deficient. And then he comments later, he says, black people, other racial groups, the reason why they're struggling on earth, and he says this is the savior theology perspective, black people, other racial groups, the reason why they're struggling on earth is because of what they're doing behaviorally wrong. And he says, under savior theology, it is my job as a pastor to sort of save these wayward black people or wayward poor people or wayward queer people. Those are his words. And then he goes on to say, I totally reject that. He says, as a Christian, my job is to believe that the people are the way they are because of oppression. It's not because of any personal sin problem. So therefore, the way I help people is not tell them that there's a savior for their sin. I help them by eliminating the oppressive forces in their lives. Now, are there oppressive forces in people's lives? Yes, there is. You can see it in the Bible. You can read the book of Psalms. You can read about that. We know it's still the case. But the Bible doesn't say that is our primary problem. Because what does that do? That means my primary problem is you, the other person. When you say it's the oppressive forces in my life, you're saying it, my primary problem isn't me and my own heart and my own sin. It's what other people are doing to me. The message of the gospel is, no, my problem is me. That's why G.K. Chesterton and others would say in response to the question, what is the greatest problem in the world? And he wrote in to the editor of the paper and said, I am. I'm the greatest problem in the world. From a personal perspective, my greatest problem and the world's greatest problem from my perspective is me. It's my sinfulness. It's my anger and bitterness and my lack of love for God and for others and and my own hatred and failure to be like God. And so that's why the first point in terms of what are we to do in response to the gospel is we're to turn from sin to God for mercy. Just like the uh, tax collector in the story we, we just read, turn from sin to God for mercy and to be Delivered from two things, 
the penalty of sin and the power of sin. You've probably heard preachers say, if all you want to do is get out of hell, that isn't sufficient. Why would that be? Why would it be the case that if all we want to do is trust in a Jesus who will get us out of hell, but that's all, why would that be another gospel? Why would that be an insufficient gospel? Because the Bible said, says that Jesus came to save us from sin. Not just the penalty of sin, but from sin itself. He didn't come just so that we can not go to hell. Well, that is a huge uh, blessing and is certainly a huge part of why he came. But repentance says, I don't just want to get out of jail. I want to live a life that will be pleasing to God so that I don't go to jail. I don't want to just escape hell. I want to be pleasing to the God who actually created me to glorify and enjoy him. And this idea of being concerned about um, both sin, its penalty, and the power is actually reflected in Acts chapter 2 when Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now think about that. He says, if you repent, you will receive the forgiveness of your sins. That's the penalty being taken away. So that you don't get the just wrath of God for your sin. But then he says, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. How is that good news to sinners? Because the Holy Spirit empowers us to put to death sin. That's what Romans 8 says. That we know that we've been born again if the Holy Spirit is in us leading us to put to death sin so that we're not only delivered from the penalty of sin, but we're more and more delivered from the power of it. Not completely in this life, but we do grow. And so there's a real sense in which there's a U-turn, just like you're driving down the highway and repentance is a U-turn. Well, I'm, I'm running hard at doing what I want to do and disregarding what God wants to all of a sudden I turn around and I'm going toward God and I want to do what God wants me to do and I'm trying to deny simply what I want to do, that my life has turned around. And that's the picture that we have in Luke 15. We don't have time to read it this morning. But in Luke 15, you have the story of the prodigal son. And he runs off with his dad's money. And he gives himself to things that are wrong of all kinds. But then in the midst of his difficulties, in the pigsty, he comes to his senses and he decides to make a U-turn and go back to his father. And he goes back and he says, Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. And I'm not worthy to be called your son. Just make me a servant. He goes back and he repents of his unrighteousness. But the rest of the story is the older son finds out that they're throwing a party because the father says, you know what? You don't have to do anything. I just welcome you back graciously. Now let's party because you have repented. You've come back. So they're having this party. The older son comes back and he refuses to come inside because he's mad that his dad is throwing a party for this brother who lived in total rebellion and unrighteousness. But he, the good elder son, had 
tried hard to please daddy. And so the father comes out and begs him to come in. He says, you know what? You're giving my brother what he doesn't deserve. He's been over there doing everything that you've told him not to do. And now you're, you've killed the fattened calf. But I've done everything you've asked me to do. I've been faithful. And you've never once threw a party for me. So what is the older brother saying? The younger brother doesn't deserve what you're doing. And you aren't doing for me what I deserve. Both of those things need to be repented of. Because to one degree or the other, we are both the prodigal son and the older son. There are times when we feel like we've sinned against God, we don't deserve anything from him, and we have to ask for mercy. There are other times we feel like, I think I've earned something from God. I think I ought to get something better than what I have. I think God is maybe cutting me short. So we're actually both of those people at different times in different ways and maybe more or less in our lives. And yet the point is we're to be rescued from both of those attitudes, both of the attitude of I'm just going to live my life the way I want to live it in disregard of God and the attitude I think I've been pretty good. I think I've lived a pretty good life. I think God ought to bless me and receive me. Both of those situations are to be repented of. And that's what faith does. That's what saving, a saving response begins with that kind of turning to God. And it's something that begins at one point, but it's something we have to do every day. Every day where I find myself giving myself the things that God says I shouldn't, I need to confess that and ask for forgiveness. I need to turn back to God. And every day where I feel like God is giving me a raw deal and I don't like the way he's treating me, I need to confess that and repent of that. And I need to, once again, believe that my king is good and he does good and he's ready to forgive and his loving kindness is everlasting and I can trust him. And that's what repentance is. And that's where a proper response to the good news of the king begins. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this time together this morning. We pray that you would help us to examine our own hearts and ask ourselves, have we repented? Have we turned from our sin and turned to you in the ways that we've talked about? Have we asked for your mercy? Have we desired to be not only free from the penalty of our sin, but free from the power of our sin Do we really want to please you in our lives? Father, please show us where we are. And in the process, help us to behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.